0: We've reached the third episode of our wuxia season, and our kind of opening question this time is going to be, what does a modern xiansha web novel in translation look like? And if everything I just said sounds like total Greek to you, or Sanskrit perhaps, don't worry because we have a guest on who's in a great position to talk exactly about whatever crazy kind of fiction I just described. Modern, so not classic xianxia, not wuxia, web novel, not generic book, in translation, because we're looking at the English version. And our guest is Etvalier, uh, an online translator. So it's going to be the first time I've had a guest on the show who just goes by their username. If you remember, we had uh, Deathblade on in the last episode, but I was calling him Jeremy, Well this time we have Etvalier, and I'll be calling her Etvalier or Etvo. But before we can get to the interview, uh, it's time for the Church of Fake News. Church of Fake being the name of this podcast, the translated Chinese fiction podcast, not the Church of Fake News because all of this news is totally genuine. So our first news item is about an essay published in the British Journal of Chinese Studies and it's by Nick Stember, who is one of the academics of this world who's working on uh, Chinese sci-fi. and. Is also kind of a academic studying, I believe if, if I remember right, Lianhua, Chinese comics. So quite an expert on pul- uh, culture. I guess that's a shortened way of saying pop culture. Uh, a cultural critic, you might say. And this essay that of his, which has been published, is called Sinophiles Between Flatland, Fetish, and then there's a French name here, which I'm guaranteed I'm going to say wrong Foiliton. So it's about sinophilia and sinophiles basically. So relevant to this show, I think. I think we can admit that. So the abstract of this essay goes thusly, and I'll try not to fumble any of these lines, but no promises. Despite or because of the increasingly fraught relationship between the Chinese and English-speaking parts of the world, Chinese studies today finds itself blessed with a wealth of voices, both within academia and without the author argues that it is this aspiration toward a plurality of perspectives rather than the seductive illusion of one right answer for all and all time that best encaps- encapsulates the value of chinese studies in the covid-19 pandemic or in any other time so it seems like a kind of a defense or reappreciation of sinophilia just because it's a way of studying another culture and recognizing that one's culture is not the answer to all the problems of the world. And it's keyworded, this gives you an idea of what the topics he's going to touch on are. Chinese Studies, US-China Trade War, James Leg, Orientalism, Simon Lays, Lin Yutang, Global Humanities, Covid-19. So I've not read this essay yet, but tis on my to-read list. And it looks like the whole thing, I believe the whole thing is there to read for free. Yeah, I think it's just like kind of laid out like a blog. So there's our first news item. Our second news item is related to a past, uh, an offer we've covered on the show in the past, Go Fay. Uh, The first book of Gufei's Jiangnan trilogy, I believe it's called Peach Blossom Island, is now up to pre-order on Amazon. uh, Translated by Kanan Morse. My guest on my Gufei episode, Eric Abrahamson, was talking about how Kanan Morse had been working on translating this trilogy, and now the first entry is up there to pre-order in English. So yeah, I think that's cool news. Our third news item is about the Chinese, uh, the London Chinese Sci-Fi Group. So um, we mentioned before. in my episode with Liu Zhao uh, on Ha Jinfang's Folding in Beijing, uh, I talked with him about that group because he's one of its two organizers. And I was saying you can attend if you're in London because they, they meet physically. But thanks to lockdown, they're now meeting virtually, which means anyone who has the right Zoom invite can attend. And their guest for this month, it'll be next weekend, I think the 26th, is going to be Tang Fei. Uh, an author of Chinese sci fi who's featured in both of Ken Leo's anthologies, Invisible Planets and Broken Stars. And the story of Tang Fei's they're going to be looking at is Wu Jing's Journey to the West, which is already up to read in English for free on Clark's World. So if you'd like to uh, attend that virtual, uh, what would you call it, gathering of fans of Chinese sci fi, uh, go to the London Chinese Sci-Fi Group's Twitter, you should get the info there. Um, if you can't find the relevant info anywhere, contact me and I can get you into their WeChat group which will have the links or I can help you get onto their mailing list. Um, that is all of our treasurefic news. Now let's get on with the interview and let's hear what Et has to say about Necropolis Immortal. So I've got on the show Et Fluffed it. Try again. So I've got <laughs> on Blair. the show Etvler. Yeah, I've got on the show Etvler, A.K.A. Uh, for short, Etvo. So Etvo, how's it going? And what have you been up to?
1: Hey, Angus and everyone listening to the podcast. It is going. <laughs> it's uh, now life is really really busy, and I was actually just thinking this week, man, I kind of really want a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrapped up a really, really big uh multi year project in April. There was a seven million character novel that took me four and a half years to translate and then I promptly launched my next novel and just literally three hours before we were we're doing this recording, I finished i um what's it ten thousand character short story for publication so I've been up to a lot of stuff fantastic
0: and are all those Projects you've been working on are they all for web publication, like our novel today, or is any of it? If I'm, I don't know if you can say this. Is any of it going for print, or is it all <laughs> web?
1: Um, well, most of them are for web novels, but the last one, the ten thousand character one, that's actually for print publication. So oh, I'm great. really excited.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. So that's what you've been up to. Can you tell the listeners a wee bit about? yourself and your journey as a translator.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I always tell readers that one day I was walking along the streets when a bolt of lightning struck me from the skies and I transmigrated to ancient China to begin my journey of cultivation and translating. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh but in real life, I kind of feel like it would, It did happen like that. My background is actually in finance, really hardcore finance. I went to business school. I got my MBA. I have a CPA. I have a lot of A certifications that are no longer relevant to me in this life. And after all these years of finance, of consulting, all of a sudden, I am translating Chinese fantasy and period drama. And I've been doing so for the past this will be my fifth year so yeah it's kind of a huge like right angle turn off the typical finance career path and sometimes I also wonder how I got here too <laughs> right. yeah so,
0: was it so it was something that you jumped in at the deep end rather than kind of paddling with just your toes first so to speak is is that right?
1: Oh, no, no, not quite. Not that crazy. (laughs) Slightly crazy, but not completely off my rocker. I was, I think, let me think, back in 2015, around Thanksgiving time, I, I was just getting pretty burned out on finance. I lived in New York City, and so the work was really frenetic, and the pace was really fast, and stress levels are really high and I was just kind of thinking man what do I want to do for the rest of my life is this the kind of life that I want to live so I just kind of took stock of what my abilities and strengths are. Made a list of pros and cons. Like any good old finance student, I did a SWOT analysis of my <laughs> strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> yes, I totally did that. <laughs> and I just started Googling online, just trying to see what I could shoehorn my interest into. One thing led to another and I discovered, I think I discovered Ren or Musha World at the very beginning of its uh, founding, like maybe a year or two in. So I was fascinated. I was like, oh my gosh, there are people translating wuxia and xianxia? These are Chinese dramas I grew up watching. And I I loved all the fanciful fighting and all the good-looking male leads (laughs) and all the revenge stories. Like, I grew up on a steady diet of those. So it really piqued my interest that there was a community for this online and there were actually people interested in reading about these stories so then i just uh, grabbed a novel or two uh, dipped my toes in started just translating a chapter or two a week just for fun and one thing led to another and here i am five years later doing this full-time
0: that's awesome i actually just learned probably more than a year ago now but um i had a, a not completely dissimilar moment to you when i was uh, x number of years and months into being a you know just a foreign teacher in China thinking wait a minute this is all right but what's what's my life plan where am I going so I went back (laughs) home to my home country of Scotland to do a master's in publishing and because that's a a business type (sighs) degree not very far into that they're like okay guys now you're going to learn how to do a business analysis time for an acronym (laughs) your SWOT analysis so for (laughs) any people blessed enough to be non- businessy and not exposed to SWOT analyses it's strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats that's what the SWOT stands for mm-hmm. and I guess we all Indeed. have our own, we all have our own um, versions of all four of those things mm-hmm. and what, what you said about having a background in uh, Wuxia and Shensha from series when you're younger um that matches our first guest in this Wuxia season um Gigi Chang she told me mm-hmm. i think i think mm-hmm. she said she'd maybe read a little bit of jin yong uh, as a as a kid in her family but her her real grounding if i remember right in in these genres was i guess tv and film and like myself mm. i don't really have that kind of grounding so it's it's interesting to see that this is a, a genre that um is like like unlike some other well i guess every genre these days is very multimedia but it seems like wuxia has it's kind of I suppose it's more than threefold, but at least on this show, uh, this podcast, we've talked about, I've talked about with my guests, um, Wuxian print, Wuxia in film and TV and as fiction, but web fiction. And that's what we're doing today. We're staying kind of in the online zone that we got into talking uh, when I was talking mm-hmm. with um, uh, Deathblade about Gulong's seven killers. So when I'm, um, we're talking today about our story or our our web novel Necropolis Immortal. We're going to be talking about online wuxia and I've got some questions for you about online wuxia and uh, how they relate mm-hmm. to Necropolis Immortal. So um here's the first question. Necropolis Immortal is a kind of a crossover of two particularly Chinese genres. Shensha, uh, which we've talked about well we've already Use the word. And if listeners want a definition of that, there's a really good one on that um, Deathblade Gulong Seven Killers episode. But I guess the condensed version is it's kind of like a Chinese fantasy, which is not a subgenre of Wuxia, but isn't probably somewhere in the same family tree. Uh, so that's the first of the two particularly Chinese genres in Necropolis Immortal. And, and the other one is Tomb Raiding, which for someone like me, as of, I don't know, a few years ago, I heard tomb raiding, I was like, well, that's not really a genre. That's just Lara Croft and all its spin-offs. But actually, yeah, <laughs> in the world of Chinese, pop culture, it's a big thing. And maybe deeper than pop culture, mm. thing too. So what can you tell us about tomb raiding and what it's got to do with Necropolis Immortal?
1: Actually, I have to confess, I'd be right there with you. Before I started translating Necropolis Immortal, I was thinking tomb raiding. Okay, Lara Croft, the oh. end. And that's and actually I how know. I kind of sold it exactly yeah and that's actually how I kind of sold it to readers at first because that's what they thought too so I was like hey guys how about Lara Croft and Cultivation yeah (laughs) and um, it wasn't until I really started with the novel by the way I love Necropolis Immortal that is all my readers say I (laughs) fangirl over my novel and Totally true. I fangirl over my novel. I love it. (laughs) And part of the reason why it's because it, it, it incorporates tomb writing into the usual typical xianxia fear of the main character cultivating and ascending through various cultivation realms to eventually reach immortality and way off like maybe in chapter 2000 eventually become emperor of the universe something like that that's mm. like the xianxia plot lines in two sentences <laughs> but with two <tomb, laughs> with tomb raiding uh, it's actually very this very uniquely chinese in the sense that and it encompasses a lot of feng shui into this genre so okay when we think tomb raiding we think tombs and traps and you know zombies and treasure and that sort of thing and that definitely is part of the chinese genre of tomb raiding uh, of tomb raiding and tombs in general but another big aspect of it is Shui, or Chinese geomancy, which is essentially the relationship of uh, the environment to people and finding a way to strike up harmony between nature and what you build in nature and people you, themselves. So there is an entire art as to how tombs should be laid out, whether with There's certain auspicious layouts or certain effects you want to achieve. Or if you really hated your enemy, you can set up their tomb so that they get cursed to never find peace in the afterlife. Oh, that sort of thing. So there's actually a whole, I'd say, pseudoscience behind the entire concept. And not to mention uh, tomb raiding is actually a thing in ancient China. There were actually ancient Chinese tomb raiding sects, and there were four of them too. And there's a lot of lore behind them. There's actually an ancient uh, government position for the commandment commandant of tomb raiders. So like the chief tomb raider, it's pretty darn cool.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because um, when you think of, I guess like the roots of the Lara Croft, like the Western or, Anglo, or whatever you want to call it, Um, Mm. the roots of of that type of tomb reading, that's about someone from, say, Britain or America or maybe France going off to uh, another country. So I guess, like, historical Mm. example would be the Brits and the French reading the tombs of Egypt. So it's uh, a, well, you could, if you're being generous, you could call it international or transnational. If you're being a bit more realistic, you could say it's kind of a genre with some colonial roots whereas uh, <laughs> and it's not that and it's <laughs> not that ancient really i suppose the tombs are ancient but those uh the historical kind of basis for it is from fairly recent history whereas the chinese tomb raiding you've described goes way back and is mm-hmm. i guess in a way it's domestic like i i don't know if these raiders would be going to the fringes of china or 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 not but it's it's a different context so it's got some mm-hmm. like you've explained it's um it's maybe got some similarities like dodging traps but there's all sorts of other things there um i mm-hmm. could probably quiz you more on that but we we do have to keep moving on so um let's... oh no <laughs> <laughs> i know
1: like My readers say, Ed Vo, you're actually a tomb raider in your past life, right? Because I keep, at the end of all my chapters, I keep giving them trivia about, mm. oh, like for instance, the main character, he lit a candle before entering the tomb. Actually, did you guys know this is a real thing? In mm. ancient Chinese history, if you lit a candle and the candle blew out before you entered a tomb, that actually meant that the spirits of the dead in that tomb did would not take kindly to visitors, and you should give up on that trip, even yeah. if you were a Tomb Raider wanting to loot them. So, All sorts uh, of stuff like this. <laughs> I,
0: I read that footnote as I was reading uh, Necropolis, mm-hmm. disclaimer for listeners. I read the first 10 chapters, and there are literally hundreds of chapters, so my knowledge of the book is limited. But I remember reading that footnote, and I thought, wait a minute. So if the, the candle goes out, that's the spirits telling you you're not welcome. Does that imply that as a tomb raider, you can be welcome or at least not unwelcome?
1: I think so. Like maybe yeah. uh, as a tomb raider, you could enter a tomb where the spirits don't care or they've already passed on, entered the cycle of reincarnation, so to speak. Right. That's what I'm thinking.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, so this story is uh, published and readable on Wuxia World, which is also where I read uh Seven Killers by Gulong, translated by yeah, yeah. Deathblade, Mr. Jeremy Bai. So what's your relationship with We, wor- uh, we World, <laughs> We shall World, um, <laughs> if one can have such a thing? And do you publish your work slash your translations anywhere else as well as We shall World?
1: my relationship with them. I am their indentured. Sur- no, okay. Ren will kill me. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. That really, really was a joke. Ren's going to kill me. So I keep saying Ren. Ren is, stands for Ren Wuxing, who is the owner and founder of Usha World, and he's a good friend of mine. So I felt like I could crack a joke like that, but no, really, that was a joke. I'm just one of their translators. Believing? And I'm friends with the boss. No, really? It really was a joke. <laughs> because I actually do publish my translations elsewhere as well. I also publish translations on Voltaire novels, which I actually founded. But then I actually stepped down for management uh, two years ago. So uh, I'm a translator for them still. And right. I translate for the publication I mentioned at the beginning. And actually, I have plans to write my own wuxia or xiansha in the far off future so definitely my work can be found in many places
0: cool um maybe you've not completely um on what's the word formulated all the ideas about what you want to write but has the wuxia that is the wuxia that you're aspiring to write going to be heavily inspired by the wuxia you've translated i mean i'm assuming the answer is yes but is there any particular ways
1: That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the drawbacks as being a translator is that we see so much and we've read so much that I have a ton of ideas swirling in my mind. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out, trying to sift through them to see what would make a good plot line for an actual novel. So Mm. they will definitely be influenced in that I have a prime example of what not to do. I hate filler, I hate trite cliche tropes, so I'm gonna try really hard to stay away from them. That's for sure.
0: Right, and do you know, would you want to write them in English or in Chinese or maybe both?
1: Oh, definitely English. My Chinese isn't good enough to write in. Mm. Um, I mean, I could, but it would read like, I don't know, elementary school level. And it definitely wouldn't be the quality that I'd want. So definitely English.
0: We've delved into Wuxia world uh, and and yourself. Now let's look at your readers or your readership. Um, Do you think they've got a kind of like a demography or taste at all different from... Uh, the other translators who who post their work to web novel, like Deathblade, or do you think they're kind of fairly representative of Wisha world in general?
1: Mm, I would say our readership demographics are probably similar because the people who tend to like to read web novels are pretty similar. Mm. And also because we're comparing novels with male protagonists. Now, if we we're comparing female versus male, then yes, definitely uh, there would be a difference. Yep, because the female protagonist, protagonist novels tend to focus a lot more on, say, palace drama or uh, romance, right. yep. whereas the male protagonist ones, there's a lot of you know adventure and fighting and maybe treasure collecting harems, that sort of thing.
0: Right. Um yeah. now this is based on having watched almost nothing. This is based on like things I've read and snatches of um Chinese TV kind of glimpsed in, in restaurants and stuff. Um am I right in thinking that in Chinese TV series, which are yeah, in Chinese TV series, not necessarily in Wuxia ones, but in ones that are historical, I said in like ancient times, there's a lot more court drama than there is adventuring. Like is are the male the male adventure kind of genre that you've described. Is that in its kind of most realized form in web fiction, more so than the kind of court drama style ones? If I don't know if I phrased Mm-mm. that question very well, but.
1: No, no, I gotcha, I gotcha. Mm. And actually all the court drama ones that you've seen, I would probably peg them for like the typical female protagonist ones. Mm. There are a lot of the adventuring ones. You'd have to find them in all the xianxia dramas and maybe a lot of the modern gaming dramas that have been popular lately. Um, right. but I will say the ones, the Chinese dramas that have been popular on an international stage in the past couple of years have tended to be court dramas like a right. uh, story of Yanxi palace. I believe that swept the world last year. All my friends in the States are asking me about it. Mm. Um, and princess agents. That was another one too. That had a lot more adventuring than usual because there was a lot of war between all the, the male love interests, but, Um, Yeah, I can't really peg a typical xianxia drama that's been as popular as them in Mm. the past couple of years.
0: So maybe the, the court dramas are, at least in like TV and film, they're a bit more mainstream
1: maybe or i think maybe we're just waiting for a really good script to come out of all the xianxia ones Mm. because there have been adaptations of really popular xianxia web novels but just in adapting a like six million character behemoth to the small screen it just didn't come across that well so uh it was derided by fans and like new fans of the book. And then new fans who just watched the drama, they're like, I don't understand this script. I don't get these characters. It was just difficulties in adaptation. So those, I don't think those got that good of a reception.
0: Right. Okay, so before we become a a TV show podcast, let's kind of (laughs) zoom in on Necropolis Immortal itself. So here's a fairly mythic question. Can you tell me about the origins of this tale?
1: the origins of this tale oh boy i'll bet you the author needed to make some money (laughs) right um well, uh, the, I guess the funny thing or the sad thing is that in this scene, we tend to not have much contact with the author at all. Mm. So we normally don't know what's what they're thinking or what's up. I actually may have a little bit more contact than usual because the author actually wrote me into Necropolis Immortal. So I have a cameo. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know what prompted his... I guess, inspiration for the novel, but I can tell that he is, I have a lot of respect for this author. Uh, I guess just to go on a small tangent, uh, in the Chinese web novel industry, authors are paid by word count. So that entices people to churn out a lot of content very quickly and not necessarily having the time to polish it to the level of quality that they may want. But this author, he really takes his time to outline and plot like make sure all the details are right for the plot. And he will actually take days off if he thinks the outline isn't going in the direction he wanted it to be going. So I have nothing but mad respect for that because every day he takes off and he actually just took one off, I think just several weeks ago, that's literally, he's earning nothing that day for something that he doesn't necessarily have to do. Right. So, so he,
0: he cares about he, it. He's a lot of
1: passion. Yeah. Yeah. He, he cares a lot about quality. That's cool. Actually, nice. uh, the Prophets Immortal is coming to an end in the Chinese Raw's release soon. That's mm. about, uh, I think, just over 2,000 chapters. I think there's uh, three or four million characters, I think. I'm not sure. Um, but he does say that in the beginning, he misread his contract. So he thought the story was supposed to end. I guess, halfway like around the one or two million character mark. So he wrote out his outline. He got everything perfectly set up. And then when he reached the end of his first planned content, he was like, wait, what? I'm not supposed to end here. I can keep writing. (gasps) So then he had to take some time off to properly plan out the second half of the novel. So I thought that was a funny aside.
0: And we should probably say his name. It's listed on Wuxia World as being immortal amid snow in july and i so from my outside perspective i've noticed that um this seems to be fairly normal in uh translated web novels where what would be a quite a short username i think in chinese can look very long and funky let's say in english um definitely yeah um do you have like a a shortened form of his name that you would use if you were talking about him. It, it might be handy just for us if we're referencing him
1: uh, the author, the author. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's probably what I would use Because that just that's just how Chinese works one character can encompass three sentences in English that's totally normal and I actually asked him about his name too because it's five characters Mm. Yeah, five characters in Chinese, and depending on where the punctuation went, it would have changed my translation. So, "Immortal Amid Snow in July" that is the meaning that he wants. So, yeah,
0: that's him. Mm. Snow in July. It's funny. I'd read that mm-hmm. author's name so many times, and only today, like half an hour before recording, I was like, "Wait a minute, snow in July? That's not when it's supposed mm-hmm. to." Be so yeah.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Yep plays mm. into it. He's actually a really shy guy. So mm. about, I think, 100 chapters in, when we reached our 100th chapter anniversary, I asked him, so, do you want to say something to all your international readers? You know, people love your novel. Mm. And so he thought about it, and his editor poked him about it. And he finally came back with, thank you for liking Necropolis Immortal. I will work hard. Oh, and I was like, no, no, give me some more. And his editor was like, uh, you got anything else? And he was like, uh, what do you want? <laughs> the poor guy is uh, very passionate about his work and he's very shy.
0: <laughs> I can respect a guy like that. Um, speaking, mm-hmm. uh, like On the topic of uh, like the kind of quality and commitment and, and whatnot he puts in, I was looking through the comments this your translation of the story got on um, "Wish I World and um there was one i thought was it was well it was articulate it was very positive and i think for people who're not familiar with like web novels especially wuxia ones or people because there's plenty of listeners to the show who like to read quote unquote like literary fiction even genre fiction's not really their bag never mind web fiction and the particular <laughs> subcultures Yeah. so i think this this praise is um it's, it was interesting for me because it, it like it gave me a sense of what makes a really good uh, web novel. So I'll just read what, um, I'll read the first mm. few lines of this guy's comment. So it's his words, sure. not mine. I want to talk about two specific features of excellent novels, and I guess he means web novels, but whatever, uh, excellent novels that can set them apart from the rest. One, detailed and coherent reasoning, deliberation and speculation by the MC, which means main character, or other characters that we as readers are able to follow along with. Number two, a complete and internally consistent system of rules in we quote marks, with clear limitations and restrictions that govern how supernatural elements work. So I I, I guess these could be rules for any like genre fiction with a, a magic system, but it seems I don't know. It seems to be a particularly good fit for um, this novel where we are following one main character, and it's it seems to me like the really big part of the appeal is the magic system but at the core you need like a character who does things that make sense and has a has a personality and i kind Mm -hmm. of got the implication from some of or not not the implication i got the sense that from some of the other comments who said similar things that this is maybe more an exception than the rule in in um, in web novels that you have a character this well formulated and logic this coherent is that right
1: Uh, i i would probably i would tend to agree yeah
0: Mm.
1: Uh, that's actually why i chose necropolis immortal i read i read through 1300 chapters of the novel before deciding i would translate it (laughs) and yeah because i wanted to really make sure i really like the novel Mm. My last one that I just finished, I picked it when I first entered the scene, when I was doing that one or two chapters a week, you know, just for fun. So Mm. not a lot of thought went into picking it. And the scene was vastly different back then, too, in terms of reader preferences and just translator experience. Mm. So I would say that is a very typical Xenxia web novel in that maybe the characters aren't that well fleshed out. There's not that much logic. You know, in fact, a lot of the side characters could be readily interchangeable. So I, I, know, I knew that I did not want to repeat that with my next novel. And one of the things that really cinched the deal for me here is actually coming up in within, I think, the next 10 or so chapters. So around chapter 220 or something like that, uh, something occurs with one of the characters, one of the side characters, mind you, that really made me just pause and go, oh, no. And it, it felt like someone hit me in the gut. And that was actually the moment when I decided that, oh my gosh, I have to do this novel because if I'm so vested in just the side characters, this means this is really well-written and I'm mm. completely immersed in this world. So I've got to share this with the rest of the world as well.
0: Absolutely. And um, you said something there that made my uh, ears prick up, uh, proverbially proverbially speaking. Uh, you said that this
1: uh-huh.
0: has changed a lot. Uh, I'm a very nosy person so can you tell me what's changed in the scene like how has it shifted as the years have gone on
1: definitely and i actually wasn't even around for the very very beginnings the primordial origins of the scene uh, i think the scene really started on forums where people would translate and share chapters and threads so that was like the very initial beginning mm. we didn't even have separate blogs or websites and from my point of view just how the scenes changed one is reader expectations they of course everything's become a lot more fast-paced when i used to do one or two chapters a week that was considered perfectly respectable and actually a fast pace Uh. and now i do two chapters a day so i don't know like i can't calculate that off the top of my head just you know what percentage increase that is but that's a huge percentage increase in speed (laughs) and there are just a lot more novels and translators in the scene right now so therefore there's a lot more selection and i feel readers have gotten a lot more discerning about what they want to read so mm-hmm. if you just continue to choose the same old typical Xinxia novels with you know the main character being super overpowered he from chapter 1 he gets all the girls he kicks all asset and he gets all the treasure from chapter one, you know, people aren't really in the mood for that anymore. They want something a little bit different. And for me, that's what I think of when I think of translator experience. The translators, we've also been through a couple novels at this point in time. So we know how to avoid, say, the cliches or go straight for the cliches if we want. So I feel like we're all making better choices as well.
0: Mm. And our readers... I don't know how like uh, if how the category navigation works on um uh we Shall world, but are like the, the different styles and genres becoming more differentiated from each other as readers get a better sense of what they want to read?
1: I think so. I would say the other genres are expanding, so maybe your urban genre or uh, well game gaming has always been a pretty strong genre, but mm. urban or slice of life um even romance the romance category has grown tremendously so people are more willing to try other genres now and they just they just want something different you know something not quite the same old formula over and over again
0: and mm. i noticed when i was reading the chapters the first 10 chapters of necropolis immortal uh Wuxia World was popping up with ads saying they're recruiting korean translators And uh, I was looking earlier today and I was seeing that there are two languages of, like, what am I trying to say? Um, Wuxia World translates into English from two languages now, uh, Chinese and Korean. Mm -hmm. Is that a new-ish thing or a growing thing?
1: Um, I would say Korean novels have been part of Wuxia World for about almost three years now. It has uh, a lot to do with some major drama that happened in the scene. I think you could probably spend another podcast on that. So we'll skip over that for now. Um, okay. And so it was, I guess pure happenstance that Korean novels joined show World. That's That's my understanding of it anyhow. And people really, readers really like the Korean novels because mm. they, again, they offer something different. And I think... What also factors into it is that the Korean author compensation scheme is a little different. They're not strictly compensated on word count. So they can be more nuanced and more methodical when it comes to their novels. And you Mm -hmm. can tell from the Korean novels that they're much, much, much shorter. So it's a a completely different ecosystem in the Korean novel scene, which then translates and impacts the translated scene.
0: That is incredibly interesting, but I'm going to have to stop myself from um, <laughs> asking more questions about it. I know,
1: it. right? We could totally gone on mm-hmm. a huge tangent.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I occasionally get that um, kind of um, feeling because I've, oh, I lived I lived in China, but um, I never, I only in the last year and maybe year and a half tried to jump down the rabbit hole of Chinese literature and Chinese literature and translation. And then occasionally I think, damn, I should, I should do this for Korean books or I should learn more about Japanese literature. And then I think, wait, hang on. <laughs> There's only so many hours in the day and you can't read books that <laughs> quickly. So maybe I should save that for later um, in my life. But um, yeah, speaking of um, uh, source languages, if our listeners are curious and um, they have Chinese reading ability, is there a place where they can find Necropolis Immortal online in its original Chinese?
1: yeah definitely necropolis immortal is known as xin mu in chinese and it's published by 17k.com it's one of the biggest chinese publishers online so you definitely find it there excellent and in fact you know you could read it and compare it you read it and compare it to my translations and see how Hmm. i did
0: (laughs) i'm sure at least one listener will um will follow that trail and who knows they might have some feedback for you or not Uh, yeah sure why not yeah. Oh, that's funny. I accidentally segued. Um, so, on the topic of feedback, um, I noticed that. <laughs> oh wait, I've already asked you this question. Yeah. Uh, let me let me start again. On the topic of feedback. Um, so, as I've, as we've kind of already said, you got a lot of positive um, feedback about the world building, the magic, or the you know the I suppose the magic and the feng shui uh, and the uh, cultivation system. might talk more about cultivation uh, later got a lot of praise from listeners about uh, not listeners Uh, the the (laughs) novel has received a lot of praise from readers uh, about those things and also about characters and like personally based on the 10 chapters I've read I I do think the characters are um, they came across as as very vivid both as like fictional people with their own personalities and thoughts but also kind of as sort of like stock characters I or you know they kind of characters okay. you might meet in genre fiction. So a hero, um, I, I think there was like a crotchety old man who might be a, a, a bad guy or a good guy. And I guess, what would you call the character Wan Feng? Like a, a love interest, I suppose, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. Um, so I just want to zoom in on, they, they appear based on these two chapters I've read to be like our two, our two main people. So there's the MC, the main character, <laughs> Lu Yun, and then there's his maid, Wan Feng, and like if, if I think of maids and pop culture in the context of East Asia, like I, there's a certain image that pops into my head and or a certain trope that pops into my head. And I was kind of getting that vibe from Wan Feng that she's definitely like a, a, a pop culture stock character.
1: Mm-hmm. or like
0: an internet culture mm-hmm. stock character as well as a literary one so i I don't really have a specific question here but just the question is what what do you think of lu yun and what do you think of an feng as a, as a reader i suppose
1: hmm. oh gosh it's too hard to think of them from just purely the perspective of a reader no, maybe I'm, I should I'm the translator yeah no, 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 no. no! I think it's a, it's a great question in that. And I was grinning when you said, oh, they like the love interest, because this is another one of the reasons why I chose Necropolis Immortal. Yes, there are people that you think are the typical stock characters. And especially, you know, when we think of a maid, oh, maybe it's a it's the, it's the cute maid who's a little silly and easily mm. embarrassed. You know, maybe that's the stock character that comes to my mind. And definitely, she appears that way at first, but then you keep reading. And then that is kind of turned on its head. And that's why I like NECRO. Uh, that's, that's the acronym for Necropolis Immortal, just NECRO. That's why I like NECRO because they, it introduces a lot of typical cliches and tropes. For instance, the province that our main character wakes up in, Dusk province, filled with beautiful women. So, of course, at the beginning, readers are like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Another one of those main character wakes up and there's beautiful women everywhere just falling over themselves to get to him. Well, uh, I think, was it 50, 70 chapters later, it's revealed that because of how uh, feng shui, so how the lay of the land is, there's an abundance of yin energy in Dusk Province, which means, and yin is associated with the feminine, with well, ladies essentially <laughs> for our purposes. So that's okay. why there's so many women in Dask province. So is this a pattern you see repeated throughout Necro. They introduce a trope, a cliche, uh, or just something for you, you'd roll your eyes at, be like, yeah, yeah, I've seen this in every Shensha novel. But then they introduce a reason for it. And this reason will actually make sense and then tie back into the plot. And then eventually they'll turn it uh, on his head. So. Yeah. It's a it's a constant exercise in, I guess, uh, breaking cliches apart, <laughs> introducing them and breaking them apart.
0: Mm-hmm. As someone who's never read much, never read very far into like a, a web novel, I definitely think just as a reader, if I was reading a thousand or two hundred chapter long, uh, very genre, you know, genre based story, I would get to a certain point where I'd i'd want the tropes to be subverted because i could maybe Mm -hmm. read a piece of genre fiction that's novel length and just enjoy it within its genre but if it's if it's going to go on that long maybe this is my outside perspective but i would probably start to fade out if it didn't play with the conventions or subvert the conventions or even comment on the conventions so yeah it's cool that you've uh, chosen to translate uh, uh, a story that Mm -hmm. does that from pretty early on Mm -hmm. like what you're saying about Wan Fung. I don't think it's too spoiler to say so as well as being kind of like an easily embarrassed sweet and so on so on made she's also she seems to be pretty dangerous or at least very powerful as well and our our main character is he's kind of like um you were mentioning the video like the the influence of video games on web fiction he's like at level zero he's not even at level one when <laughs>
1: the story. yep yep he's a nothing mm-hmm and, and actually, that in itself is a trope too. The main character right. starting off at uh, basically completely, completely trash, but then he somehow trashes other people despite him being trash. So yeah.
0: So I guess we were talking a little bit about this already, but um, here's the question said outright: How typical or atypical is Necro, Necro that is Necropolis Immortal, as we've said, in how it handles Chinese culture? I don't know why I emphasize Chinese like that. Uh, Chinese culture. <laughs> Uh, Chinese culture and xianxia tropes. So not just the genre tropes, but how it handles things like feng shui and things Mm -hmm. in xianxia like cultivation, which we had a bit of a primer on in the uh, Mm -hmm. Deathblade episode.
1: I think think they definitely handle xianxia tropes in a seemingly typical way, but then totally subverts it. And I actually wanted to quickly call back to something you just said in that if you're a reader reading these novels for thousands of chapters that eventually you want something different Mm -hmm. that is totally true and our readers actually read multiple novels at the same time so when you read like I don't know, five, six novels at the same time, and they're all hitting on the same cliches, you definitely get very tired of them after some point. And the scene is about eh, five, six, seven years old now. We have some readers who are here from day one. So they've had multiple years of the same stuff. So definitely reader fatigue is something I feel like I've been seeing in the scene. And you sometimes see that with new novel launches um, when when that and that's actually why when necro launched i made sure to play up the tomb raiding aspect because if i just played up the xinxia cultivation aspect you know uh, follow the journey of our mc as he cultivates in a broken world blah 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 readers would automatically tune that out because mm. they've heard that beginning for i don't know dozens of times already so right definitely but then uh what ne- necro does in a very atypical fashion is its management of Chinese culture and the whole, honestly, feng shui. I think this might be the first novel in the scene that makes feng shui such a big part of its plot. So just, again, feng shui, you know, nature between items and nature or people and nature and how we can harmonize our presence with each other. So... Chinese geomancy, it actually factors hugely in tomb layouts and therefore how Lu Ying, or the MC, needs to solve puzzles and riddles in order to get what he wants or sometimes just make it out alive. So there's a lot of mention of feng shui and a a lot of Chinese culture in the novel. And sometimes people like that, no, sometimes they don't. Um, I've seen reviews where (laughs) reviews will say, this play, this thing is so confusing, so many terms I've never heard of before, ugh. Mm. <laughs> or I've also seen reviews that go, well, this is great, you know, something off the beaten path, because the, I think the author ties this huge aspect of Chinese culture in very well with the whole power system and this new world of magic and fantasy. So I think I think it's really well done. I like it, even though translating the terms are hell absolute hell (laughs)
0: Um, I I noticed when I was reading that to maybe to help out some of the readers who felt a bit lost with all the terminology you made some like explainer articles and even some graphics if I remember right and Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the the one I think I think the intricacies of feng shui as a reader I was happy to just roll with them I didn't need to understand them but um the graphic that you had for the the cultivation system and how that worked Maybe just because it is mm-hmm. so intricate, it, like as a reader, I quite liked having uh, a graph there. It reminded me of reading um, like a, a print fantasy novel, which is the, where mm-hmm. the, the world and the geography is important. So they put the map like, um,
1: mm-hmm. well, there's lots mm-hmm. of examples,
0: yep. but like Lord of the Rings and uh, Song of Ice and Fire. They're the, the two like obvious ones. And I've, I've known at least one pal uh, who's like, I don't like these maps. I think it takes away my, from my imagination. Whereas I'm like, yes, I, I want a little graphic <laughs> I could flip back to, um, especially if it looks nice. Yeah. That's a bonus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah,
1: that's why I just I just linked to those graphics. So if people want them, they can click them. But if they don't want them, you know, just ignore them. It's mm-hmm. there for you if you want it. And I actually I, I made the I only planned on making the the map, the geography and the cultivation system graphics because I knew they were very confusing. And uh, they I needed readers to get that system down in their minds for reasons I cannot say because that would be a spoiler I'm sitting on so many spoilers for this novel that I can't mention because they subvert the cliches I read all the reader comments and they're like okay so this is gonna happen and that's gonna happen because of this and that and I'm just sitting behind my screen going ah no that's not it but I can't say why (laughs) you just have to wait for it And um, I hadn't planned on writing the feng shui article, uh, just a primer on what it is. I actually wrote it. If you make it a chapter 50, you'll see what I mean. I got so annoyed with people, I guess, hitting a mental roadblock when it comes to feng shui that I I wrote this huge translator's note at the end of chapter 50. It was almost the same length as the chapter, I think. (laughs) Because like there are people like you, you know, if they don't get feng shui, they're like, eh, whatever, you know, new power system, I'm just going to roll with it, whatever. But then there were a subset of readers who really got into it, and they were just rejecting it with every fiber of their being. (laughs) Essentially, they're like, well, this is a crap system, and this is totally bullshit. So this makes this entire novel bullshit, and I'm not reading bullshit. And I'm just like, what? Wait, wait. (laughs) I mean, this is a fantasy novel. We've got people flying around on swords, and killing zombies but okay like the 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 relationship of people and nature is what really gets to you huh okay <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah and I, I kept telling them you know just treat it as another power system even the novel itself says it's just another power system so formations are okay like and formations for i guess listeners who don't know it they're basically you uh draw some lines on the ground and they form a diagram and the diagram does something Like it could be a protective formation. It could be a a offensive formation. So basically those readers are telling me drawing lines on the ground and having them shoot like bolts of energy at their enemies is okay. But something entrenched in thousands of years of Chinese history is not okay, dude. (laughs) Yeah. So I just got really annoyed.
0: (laughs) That's understandable. I I think um, you, you said earlier that you're a huge fan of the novel and like, so I'm, Whenever I make a comment on the translation or translators, I always preface it with, "I'm I'm not a translator," but um, that's
1: totally yeah. fine.
0: But that. my my take, my my take here is that I think it's a really good thing when a translator, and this is not, it's not a controversial opinion, but it's maybe one that can't be said enough. I think it always seems to be a great thing when a translator is like absolutely behind their offer. Likes their story and is prepared to like stand up for them, um wave the flag for them, promote their stuff. and th- the fact that you're kind of w- that it gets you down when the readers aren't digging the the functionary system or whatever, and you're prepared to say you're prepared to do things to help them understand because you also like believe in seems wrong, but you're very down. you're you're a huge fan of what the author has done not just with the story, but with the, the the genre magic systems and whatnot. Whereas I can imagine like some other translator who's maybe just taken the job because it pays hypothetically, they might not really care about um, all the time that the author's put into his kind of genre specific magic systems. And then they wouldn't stand up for it. And then the readers would have less, you know, they're mm-hmm. for them so it's it's a great thing mm-hmm. sounds a bit <laughs> sounds a bit like i'm a bit on um, <laughs> judging seat but it is a cool thing to see
1: i i guess it's like it goes hand in hand it's because i love the novel so much that i I really want to share it with other people and i want them to love it or you know they don't have to love it that just at least give it a chance because it mm. isn't quite your typical and i think a lot of people would enjoy it so what really got me down was that not only i guess not in the sense that they didn't like feng shui i still have readers who don't like feng shui and that's totally fine you know it's just a belief system you don't have to buy into it but at least you gave it a chance you know and that's that's all i'm that's all i'm hoping for i, I what really gets me down is if people say oh feng shui is crap and so this is a crap novel i'm not even going to read such a crap novel and i'm like ah why let why let your, I guess, dislike of a power system prevent you from even trying the novel, and you know, all that really makes me sad. Mm. But I, I, after writing that article, I still have readers who write in their reviews like, "Hey, you know, I, 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 I don't dig this functionalist stuff. I, I read those article, and I still don't really get it. And you know, that's totally fine. You don't have to like it. Just, just give it a chance. You know, keep an open mind. I, I'd say.
0: Absolutely. Going back a wee bit to the the world building, you talked before you mentioned that the setting is a a fallen world and as I was um, reading the book I was thinking you know this well as I read the premise I was like damn so the setting is a world where the elevated immortals the real like xia ren used to reign or exist but there was some cataclysm all the immortals were destroyed and you can see like relics in the landscape of their massive works mm-hmm. in ruin and it, my first thought was well my first i had two initial thoughts one was i this is so cool i love this premise and the second thought was, <laughs> was this is so original i've never seen anything like this but then when i thought about it Uh, I thought, well, actually, no, I have seen quite a few things like this, just not in like a Mm -hmm. Xianxia context. But that's because I'm not really a Xianxia reader. Um, Mm. But Yeah, I was thinking how this is like a very cool trope in lots of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and I think it's one I would never get tired of. Um, Actually, Mm -hmm. the the two that are popped into my head first and are popping into my head first now are from from video games. one's the mass effect games which where the the legacy of what was left behind in the universe becomes really important and the other one's uh, mm. the halo video games where one of the mm. the plot is driven by these people who are well until the games got a bit convoluted and silly are an invisible <laughs> lost presence and they're called the forerunners the clue like the clues in the name as to what their point in the plot is but the, the stuff like that really tickles my imagination be it in a novel a web novel a movie a game Is it, is that something that it, well, I guess two questions. Is it something you're into too? And is it actually kind of common in the Xianxia genre?
1: I think it's actually quite a common trope, actually. Mm. Uh, Maybe not to the point of it being a fallen world, but definitely where there was a huge war or a huge natural disaster aeons ago that set the world back. Or maybe it's a dying world. So they got the main character enter the world right before it's about to incur that catastrophic disaster, or maybe mm. the MC experienced it and then was reborn to a time before it happened. So he can try to re- uh, he uh, re- can relive his life and try to avoid all the mistakes he did in the first round. So definitely that's a common trope. Mm. Um, then I think I, it wasn't, that wasn't as much of a draw for me. I think when it came to Necro, it was more of the tomb raiding because right. it, that just seemed quite different. Mm. And then when I started reading more of it, uh, the actual plot drew me in. Uh, the author's really written some nice plots and some, I guess, really like, huge plot twists that really blow your mind. Although I will have to say the first 50 chapters almost made me give up several times because they are quite filled with uh, some horror that you'd find in tombs having to do with like zombies and creepy crawlies that go bump in the night. I'm not a big fan of those things. So I had to read those first 50 chapters in the daylight. I couldn't read them at night.
0: (laughs) Right. So the kind of horror or, uh, Yeah, the horror or gory (laughs) or frightening aspect that it gets Mm -hmm. out back a bit later on. Mm
1: -hmm. Yep, and I actually did happen across a reader comment once and they said, oh my gosh, I should not be reading this novel on my lunch break. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. I I looked at the chapter they commented on. I was like, yeah, this was one of the most gory chapters. (laughs) I hope you had a good lunch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess when I was reading um, the... Uh, what can we say? The icky bits. I maybe I'm just a bit more jaded. I thought they were kind of amusing. And speaking of things being amusing, <laughs> um, another aspect of the book that maybe we've not talked about yet is the humor. Like it's um, it's it's got some jokes. It's got some some levity. And like just like on a deeper level, I I kind of had like some reflection towards the end of the ten chapters I read, where I was like, oh, I actually feel like quite relaxed reading this, not just like the feeling of reading a book and you're into it and uh, so that reading it is effortless and not a slog. Maybe more that it was putting me in a kind of a a light-hearted chilled out sort of mood and I remembered that another name for web novels which I think comes from like their Japanese incarnation if I remember right is light novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah this is kind of like light Mm -hmm. reading in in the best possible sense not in like a um, pejorative way. Um, so I, I, mm-hmm. I just want to ask, do you, do you think part of the appeal of web fiction or web novels, um, at least in translation from Chinese, is that they don't take themselves too seriously? They they're, they know how to make you laugh and they kind of know how to poke fun at themselves as well. Is that accurate?
1: I think that's definitely part of the appeal. Uh, oh, I think the, the appeal could be summed up with how versatile it is it can take itself not too seriously. You know, it can focus strictly on uh, just poking fun of itself, or it could focus strictly on slice of life and just being a really chill novel that seeks to relax readers and not make a, I guess not be a running commentary on certain societal issues. So mm. I think that's definitely, it's one of the big appeal factors. And another one, uh, is uh, I would attribute it to just how timely it is because it's serialized fiction, so daily updates. You can quickly incorporate any big, say, mm, popular culture shifts or... Uh, maybe you know uh, social commentary if you wanted or memes or just stuff that happens in real life and you could quickly incorporate that into your novel so it's uh, it's a kick of relevance and pop culture interest for the readers as well
0: right yeah I'm um, like I'm trying to think of examples from other media where they're able to adapt to um changes very quickly I've got a, f- a few in my head um So I remember there was a, there's a British documentary maker, this is really quite far from um, light novels, but he makes like (laughs) quite freaky, but also quite deep uh, political documentaries. And they, he, he, I think he spends a lot of time making them. They're, they're tends to be very long, very intricate, but right after um, the current American president, Donald Trump was elected, um, he banged out well, I say he banged out, immediately they released um, a new one of his documentaries called uh, "Hypernormalization." So it had lots of footage of um, Donald Trump on the campaign trail. And it kind of, it didn't say anything outright, but you could assume if he hadn't uh, won that election, they might have released quite a different version. They must have, maybe they'd had two versions on the fly, but you can imagine it would be quite logistically uh, tricky. And I know there was another a TV show I watched that did something similar to try and keep up with what was going on with that um, election race and what happened after after um, Donald Trump won it. It was uh, Mr. Robot where they would splice in, it had been a thing from previous seasons, um, where they would splice in footage of President Obama and then later President Trump um, commenting on something and they would spin it so it was somehow related to the events in the show. But you can imagine they must have had to have some flexibility and planning and you can imagine it be quite a hard thing given how many people are involved with tv and how strict the schedules are but yeah like you said if if a web novel is just one person bringing out fairly brief chapters regularly i i I can't i can't think of how a wuxia or a shensha story could comment on uh, ongoing events but i could see like yeah like you said the versatility must be enormous
1: Mhm. And I think it's just in general uh, sometimes the plot can be sometimes the plot can be pretty overarching and pretty convoluted and serious but just how the novels are written is written in a very, I guess, easily digestible format that could go back to what you were saying about the genre not taking itself too seriously. It's also something I've noticed uh, when pointing people to say old wuxia classics, maybe the ones by Jing Yong or Gu Long. It's mm. that first time readers of the genre, they'll pick it up and they'll, they'll go, oh, this is a little bit like a history book almost where where's all the action where's all the fighting and the, the, you know, the relationships and stuff like that. And I'm like, Oh, Hmm. I guess, you know, after all these years, even the modern readers tastes have changed. They'll, they'll, they'll pick up a book and in fact be looking for something that's a lot more fast paced than say the classics might've been.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I noticed reading, um, I read the English translation of the, the, the first, um, Condor Heroes. Well, I read the first book of the English translation of Legend of the Condor Heroes by Jin Yong, hero born. And I think maybe this is just f- for me specifically, but the big appeal for me that it had a real historical um, setting. He'd put his story in a real mm-hmm. episode in Chinese history, although he'd stylized it for his own purposes. And I, I got the feeling or I get the feeling from what I've seen of um, web novels. That's not really... Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing a part of the picture here, but it seems like the appeal of web novels is that they tend to be in fantasy worlds, um, which don't bog themselves down by tying themselves down to real historical events, if they're even set in like real China or real somewhere else.
1: Mm-hmm. Pros and cons to that, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, there's there's definitely an allure the allure to be had in adapting real historical fiction or adding to it adding fan elements of fantasy to it and there's also the freedom of just going off completely in a fiction completely fictional fantasy world and having a complete blank slate to work with definitely
0: yeah So um, going from kind of the the question of uh, lightheartedness and fun, let's take a reverse turn and get technical, because after all, you're a translator and translation is, at least on some level, it's a technical job as well as like, in this case, a a literary Mm job. So um, I noticed uh, that your um, translation of Necro on uh, We World, it credits a team of some other translators, if I have that right. So um, can you tell uh, the listeners and myself how you and your team uh, worked on this project?
1: Sure. My team is actually a holdover from my previous novel, Sovereign of the Three Realms. I uh, actually hadn't planned on forming a team, I suppose, and I actually don't actively recruit for my team. It's just we work together for a very long time. And so I asked them, hey, if you want to work with me on my new novel, no, why not? I've worked with them for about eh, two or three years already. And what basically happens is that they take the first step of the chapter for me, Uh, so first draft, so to speak, and then I go back over it uh, several times. The first time I'm usually checking for translation accuracy, so just how they rendered the terms, how they rendered names, uh, if the full meaning of the Chinese is captured accurately in the English, and that pass is also when I finalize the names, because there are a lot of names in Necro, and mm. all, most of them are very hard to name because of all the feng shui influence. And uh, I mean, we're on chapter I think 200, and we already have a glossary of more than I would say. I think we're approaching 400 terms in the glossary. So Gosh. a lot of names, yeah a lot of naming Uh, once quick tangent once i almost died when i saw the author slip in a bit of tai chi philosophy so not like the tai chi you see elderly folks do in the parks the actual philosophy behind all the moves Mm -hmm. so for 20 characters 20 chinese characters i spent an entire afternoon on 20 characters Huh, <laughs> <laughs> that was an undertaking. It was like four hours researching what every single one of those characters meant and then trying to parse it all in English. And then in a way that sounded just as cool as the Chinese. Yeah, mm. anyhow, so a lot of that happens. So I'm first checking for translation accuracy. Then I go over it again to conform it to my writing style because i am the lead translator so it should all read like it was translated what by one person as opposed to a mishmash of a ton of other styles and then before i post it i go over again to check for typos or just nitpick at stuff i'm uh i'm I'm slightly i guess i'm uh, I guess other 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 translators might call me rather strict or anal. <laughs> I admit, I have uh, I, I impose what I think are high quality standards on on myself, and I really don't like deviating from those. So. And uh, I'm always trying to improve my writing. So a chapter can be perfectly fine, but if I feel like it doesn't quite deliver the pack or the punch of a fight scene or a really heartfelt conversation, I'll go over it again and again and again until I feel like it achieves the effect I want. So prior to posting, I'll probably have gone over it eh, three, four times. Got it. Yeah.
0: Okay, Uh, next technical question. So, I noticed in my last episode reading Seven Killers, uh, Deathblade's translation of Gu Long's novel, that um, there were footnotes at the bottom of each chapter. And I I guess I've learned from reading Necro that I guess that's a a built-in feature of Wisha World that the author, or the the translator rather, can can add their their own footnotes. And Mm -hmm. um, I noticed just like Deathblade, you were footnoting tricky points where you there wasn't necessarily anything too uh, questionable about the translation, but sometimes you would leave a footnote to say, here's an interesting uh, word, here's how I arrived at this one. And other times you say, "Here, here's a, the best possible translation I, I think I can do, um, here's some reasons why it may not be ideal, or, or here's how I arrived at it. And I, I, it was interesting to me, as someone who's most of the stuff in translation uh, from Chinese I've read, has been in print from like a conventional, traditional or a mainstream publisher where they kind of want to they, they want to put together a product where everything is authoritative authoritative and kind of like <laughs> perfect. And of course translation especially from Chinese into English to really different languages is kind of by its nature never quite perfect. So in the footnotes in print books mm-hmm. I've read there might be an explanation of a of a term if it's not if they've deliberately un, left it untranslated or if it needs context but i can't think of a time where i would see a translator in print in traditionally published books say eh, this this may not be ideal or uh oh, here's the story of how i slogged to get this footnote so i think it's kind yeah. of a, a fun thing it's not a bad thing to me it's a good thing about um The footnotes yourself and other translators can leave on Wusha, where you can. It kind of introduces in a way like a meta aspect. It calls attention to the fact that yourself, Etvo and Dethly, you you guys aren't the writers. This story came from somewhere else in another language. And like again, if if a reader isn't too bothered about that, they might just skip over the footnotes. But if they're really interested in that, like the the meta element or the origins of the story or the 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 jewel craft that went into it the writer's craft and the translator's craft it's um it's there for them so it seems like as a translator on usha world you've got a freedom to kind of not present yourself as perfect that a translator working for um a traditionally like a traditionally uh, print published book doesn't so my question is do you see yourself as having extra freedom in that way? Or is it not really something you would think about or think in those terms?
1: Mm. Uh, great timing on the question actually, since I just completed a work for a print publishing company. Oh, yeah. So I actually have very yeah timely, relevant experience to compare it to. Um, I, I think I would agree. I feel that I have a lot more freedom on Wuxia World in the sense that I, I feel that translators can call the shots how they see them, of course, within certain appropriate limits. You know, you can't just go yeah far off and translate like yellow as blue or something that's just mm. yeah that's nonsense but i would say we have a lot more freedom to express ourselves and you will see it in the footnotes or the translator thoughts of people who choose to take advantage of that so i think me and death Plate are probably the some of the ch- chattiest translators out there <laughs> uh, for me i post all these footnotes for several reasons actually uh, one I actually do it to head off with some challenges. <laughs> we actually do have readers who will compare the Chinese to the English and then say, right. hey, why did you use this term? It should be this mm-hmm. term. And then blah, 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 blah. So I've gotten enough challenges like that in the past. I, I say challenges because uh, sometimes they're not very friendly when they <laughs> do that. So now I try to, when I know something might be a little controversial, I just head that straight off. To begin with because mm. I am more than happy to host to have a conversation with someone if they want to say hey Why'd you go with uh, I don't know cup instead of mug mug might have fit this word a lot better That's totally fine But then it's when you know people roll in already with an opinion already formed and they think the translator wrong No matter what they say. Well, you're not gonna get very far with them So those people ought to say hey answered it in the footnote next <laughs> Yeah. That's one reason. Uh, another is, um, like you mentioned, the slog. If, for instance, the Taiji philosophy one, I put a huge footnote explaining every single one of those characters because my mindset precisely was, hey guys, I spent all afternoon on these 20 characters. You are going to go on the same journey as me. <laughs> you have to see the fruits of my labor. I don't care. Okay, fine. You can just skip them if you don't care, but I don't care. <laughs> you just, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> so that's mm. definitely one of the reasons why. And sometimes I will put footnotes in there to really, I guess, explain more of the language as a whole, because Chinese is such a indistinct and vague language and expressive language Mm -hmm. that one character can literally be several lines. So it's impossible sometimes to come up with a pithy, succinct English translation, it's just not possible. So for those I love, Sharing with the readers, saying, "Hey, you know, this is what else went into the whole naming process, and these are the other connotations that the word might have, but just for brevity's sake, or for uh, context, or or what I think fits the story better, this is what I chose." So it's definitely, I think it's just a very different culture from print publishing mm-hmm. and actually funny you mentioned Gigi because uh, i chat with Gigi occasionally online and um we're talking about the Yong translation as at, at a period of time and i wrote a review on the first book of the first book of the um, legends of the condor heroes that came out recently yeah, hero and born. yes a hero born great translation um, but I knocked it really badly in my review for the names. And mm. honestly, I think this is where maybe a couple footnotes might have really helped to help explain why the translator picked the names they did. Because Jing Yong is such a well beloved grandmaster of the genre, and he, his works have been adapted so many times that everyone will have their own thoughts and feelings about what sort of names should be used or you know what sort of naming convention is appropriate so then obviously the translator can only pick one way because you can only set things down in paper once Mm -hmm. then everyone else who didn't have their viewpoint catered to they'll be like what the heck no way this (laughs) isn't the Huang rong of my imagination why (laughs) did you know that and so when i was writing that review i actually checked a lot of other reviews online and i noticed a lot of other reviews knocking the names Mm -hmm. and so that And that was where I was thinking, you know what, maybe a few footnotes explaining the translator's naming process would have been helpful because then all of us wouldn't get hung up on the naming scheme. We just skip over it and focus on the great story at hand. And in fact, Gigi uh, once told me, you know, you should just ignore the names and just read the novel. I'm like, okay, I know I will, but <laughs> it just, it just bugs me when I read the novel to see the English names done like that. Mm. So, Yeah.
0: I, I've just imagined an amazing um, scheme for web publishing where let's say you have a character whose Chinese name could feasibly be rendered in pinyin or you could translate it and it's impossible to choose because you're going to disappoint the fans either way. Well, why not have a drop down yeah. menu where you can <laughs> choose a name and <laughs> it sets that name for the whole novel?
1: Actually, that's a thought. That's definitely a thought.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. like my um, inner my inner trickster <laughs> has come up with that idea.
1: You might be onto something here. A new market opportunity.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah. I have to learn Chinese and become, well, either become a translator who's got really good Mandarin or a web developer with really good coding. And I have neither (laughs) of those things. So I have to cultivate my (laughs) work and put that into it. Mm -hmm.
1: On the bucket list.
0: Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Precisely. (laughs) Time is limited. Um, okay. Yeah, so I think that's all the questions I have about footnoting and whatnot. Um, so last technical question, last translation type question. Um, I think we've touched on a few of these already, but are there any other really juicy like translation linguistic problems you have to solve while working on um, Necro that you'd really like to share with the listeners?
1: Hmm, I think... I guess maybe two two examples. Uh, one of them I've already kind of mentioned is the naming. Sometimes the naming gives me hives in this novel because it just it touches upon so many things. It touches upon feng shui, which is a whole system in itself with a ton of other names, but it also ties in a lot of Buddhism and a lot of like we had taiji philosophy already, so a lot of other philosophical or religious thought. And it gives mm. me hives to have to name treasures after say a Buddha's name, because I can't actually use the Buddha's name because you know that'd be kind of a huge insult. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know, it's just stuff like that. So there is a lot of brainstorming that goes on for naming. And I have drawn on a lot of different languages. I've drawn on ancient Latin, Greek, uh, Sanskrit. Uh, I think there's two, one or two other languages I've drawn on as well. Yeah, so Mm. definitely I am broadening my horizons. It's a great challenge. And then I guess the other juicier aspect of translating um, would actually be a lot of the, not a lot, but like some parts of the humor or just the way things are expressed in the novel. People have asked me, you know, hey, Atvo, how much of the humor that we see in the novel is you and how much of the humor is the actual Chinese right. and I will say definitely I play it up in some aspects but I don't make things up out of thin air. For instance in the first 10 chapters you probably encountered a character with a rolling head. i yes. not to give any spoilers here. Yeah but a rolling head <laughs> and the effect the or the sound effect in quotes that I used for the guy was roll roll roll. Mm. and the readers loved it they're like oh my gosh i can perfectly picture the guy's head rolling and and i hadn't actually expected for the reception to be so pronounced for that sound effect i just actually chose it on a whim because i felt that expressed the effect and what the author intended to convey better in the chinese it was just your generic generic sound effect so if translated it would literally be pinging it would be gudong and kudong, kudong. some translators actually do gudong you know they leave the pinging in but i was i i try not to because i feel mm-hmm. that uh, pinging just doesn't mean much to folks who don't understand pinging yeah and if i saw gudong
0: in italics i wouldn't know what it yeah, meant
1: exactly you'd be like um okay and gudong <laughs> is also uh, sometimes translated to gudong yeah gudong is also sometimes translated as just drop So, you know, just Hmm. dropped on the floor, drop. And I was thinking, "Mm, yeah, but the head is actually rolling. So I don't just, I don't want to just end it with drop. Sometimes people will translate it as grumble or rumble. And I was also like, ah, that doesn't really fit. So I actually just selected roll, roll, roll as something I thought would fit it better, but it turned out to be really, really funny and people really liked it. So there are some other, there's several spots in the novel that I tweak a little, or I would say I localize in English to get the effect across better, but I'm never making stuff up out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, I think um, I talked a little bit about this sort of thing did an episode with Brian Holton who's uh, he's a translator of well, quite a few different things, but he's um, we were talking about Yang Lian, the poet and he's also, I think he's the guy for translating uh, Chinese into Scots, he does that but we, we were talking about um, Xian, funnily enough, long before I was doing any wuxia, uh, the topic of um, like, what's an immortal? And he's like, well, or or, or and actually, I have, no, I have no memory of how it came up, but he, he gave like a really in-depth uh, explanation of what a shien is and why it should be translated immortal and not fairy, as it is in a lot of older um, translations. And then I said to him, true, like fairy is a bad translation because it gives a misconception of what an immortal in Chinese context is. But on the other hand, like when I first read, um, one of the first translated pieces of Chinese fiction I ever read was Dream of the Red Chamber. And the young man protagonist who oh, this is awful, I've forgotten his name. Bao Yu or Bao Yu, I think it's Bao Yu. Bao Yu is visited by a fairy. And as a reader who didn't really know anything about what a an immortal was or a Xian or a fairy, I was like, Oh, there's a version of fairies in Chinese culture. And my imagination <laughs> took it and ran with it. And Brian Holton said uh-huh. Yeah, because sometimes mistranslations can be just as magical or strange translations yep. can bring out something that was never even there, but that doesn't mean it's not magical.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Very true. Uh-huh.
0: I think the example. I think that gave... speaks
1: to the exp- Sorry, what
0: mm-hmm. were you going to say?
1: I just wanted to add on to that. That I think it speaks to the experience of the translator and just you, you cho- choosing which to play up and which to mm-hmm. emphasize, and you know what effect you're really going for.
0: Mm -hmm. and i guess like you said it's kind of a rule of the dice what the reader's response might be you you were going for roll 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 as like the best kind of compromise or the best Mm -hmm. um what am i trying to say yeah the best yeah the best phrase (laughs) you, you could do with um the two disparate languages you're working with and then for whatever reason it magically affects your readers and they love it but yeah, um I, I feel like I'm beginning to get so esoteric that I'm getting lost in my own middle of my own sentences. So um <laughs> let's stop talking about translation and um go into the miscellaneous category, odds and ends. Um sure. so I've I used to always forget to do this. I've pretty much consistently implemented it now. But can you recommend for the listeners uh, a Chinese word of the day? Um could be whatever you wanted but i guess ideally something related to necropolis immortal
1: i actually thought of this before our podcast and now i've totally forgotten myself
0: you'd be surprised how <laughs> often that happens Um, i could suggest one if you're if you're totally stuck uh
1: i think i i could i don't oh man i totally forgot my original example but i guess i could suggest i could suggest a series a series of words yeah that relates to necropolis immortal okay. um I think I'd go with uh, the word for tomb, which is mm. mu, which is different from uh, the word for burial mound, which is feng. Right. And tomb, because tombs are much more formal. They're actual structures and there's a certain method to how they're laid out. Whereas burial mounds, you're just, it's a mound. It's a of dirt that you just throw mm. people on and then uh there's actually a lot of different words that all mean tomb different types of tomb but then they're uh they're 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 just different characters based on like their intent Mm -hmm. um hang on i am trying to locate a barrow so i'm trying to locate the word what was the word for barrow hang on i'm looking at my uh glossary here we just had this come up in the last dozen chapters
0: interesting um
1: Great, I don't know how to pronounce that.
0: <laughs> no. Has it got lots of strong?
1: I don't think so. Hang on. Um great. I don't know how to pronounce that, but there is another word for Zhong. It really is. It's Zhong. Alright, so 中. we have mu for tum. Feng. Right. feng, feng, feng. Mu Feng Feng crap. I can't pronounce that either. Feng <laughs> for uh burial mound and Zhong for a tomb, but for objects. So why objects? Uh, that occurs when you can't actually find the body of the dead, so they bury their objects instead. It's uh, really right. sad. Yeah, but they they're all tomb related.
0: It's actually. Well, it's not its not too much of a crazy coincidence, but when you were um, stuck and trying to think what your word was, and I offered to suggest one, I was actually going to say, what was that um, Mu character you said that was in the Chinese title? If I remember right, the corpus immortal oh, yeah, in Chinese yeah. is uh, Xian Mu, right?
1: Uh-huh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Xian, I think that was a previous word of the day, that's immortal, and Mu, that's our mm-hmm. word of the day for today. Uh, too.
1: Yeah, woo! <laughs> and so actually, uh, I guess readers quick on the update will be like, well, hang on, if Shen is immortal and Mu is tomb, that means the name should be Immortal Tomb. Well then, why didn't I choose Immortal Tomb? You shall have to read Necropolis the Mortal to find out.
0: <laughs> well said. Right, that was our first miscellaneous question. The next one is even more silly. Um, if Necropolis the Mortal was a drink, what drink would it be? Can be soft drink, can be a not soft drink. Uh, it could be a fantasy drink. Uh, you have free reign.
1: Dang, non soft drinks. Wait, no, dang, soft drinks are an option. I immediately went to the alcoholic variety. I no, I will.
0: I, the, I do too, but I don't want to give the impression we are, you know, in excessively alcoholic podcast. So.
1: <laughs> I mean, where do you think translators get our kicks, huh? Mm. <laughs> we're behind our screens like 24-7. No, um, I actually, uh, this I do remember. Ne- I would, if Necropolis Immortal were a drink, I would say it would be a whiskey sour made from top shelf whiskey. So why right. top shelf whiskey? Okay, so whiskey sour is a classical drink. It's mm. a classic drink, you know. You, you know what goes into it. You know how it tastes like. So therefore, at the beginning of Necropolis Immortal, you're like, okay, I see all the typical Shot tropes and plot lines. Okay, I know how this novel's going to go. see down.
0: Jack Donovan's Immortal but... over there.
1: <laughs> exactly. But when you make it with top shelf whiskey, it actually imparts a different finishing taste to the whiskey sour. There's different levels of taste. And uh, it just, it, it, it tastes different from your typical sweet sour drink. So it's a twist on the usual, which is what Necro is. It's a twist on the usual. It subverts all the cliches that you th- think is going to happen and that you thought the novel was going to go in. And then the drink itself is sweet and sour. So yes, there is a lot of sweet and funny humor parts, humorous parts to be enjoyed in the novel. And then there's also some really serious... I would say there's actually quite a few philosophical questions that are tackled in the novel. Like for instance, is a zombie still a zombie if it acts human for all intents and purposes, if it thinks it's human and it acts human Mm. and it's actually comes back to life. So it's a living zombie. Is it a zombie then, or is it human? Is it our thoughts and actions that make us human or is it our physical characteristics that makes us human? Because we actually, we have some humans in the novel that act like real dang monsters. So I would say sometimes the zombie is more of a human than they are. But yeah, there's just like interesting philosophical questions like that.
0: Yeah, cool. That's got my, already got my little philosophy brain going. And uh, it also Mm -hmm. makes me think that's something people might think is more sci-fi territory. Like what, what boxes do you have to tick? For something to be qualified human Mm -hmm. in terms of, like applied to robots, androids, AI, or even aliens, but yeah, it Mm -hmm. it could equally apply to zombies in the horror and fantasy genres. So yeah, whiskey Mm -hmm. sour, um, very good answer. That was maybe, I mean, you're up against some stiff competition, um, but that was maybe our (laughs) best logical explanation of why you chose your drink. So thank (laughs) you for that.
1: Yes, thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Um, Okay, and last piece of miscellany it's your self promo slot um you are really out there on 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 the online platforms so i imagine you've probably got at least one place you could direct our listeners
1: Definitely. Uh, Just go to my site. (laughs) That's the easiest. It's etvolare.com. So E-T-V-O-L-A-R-E.com. It links to all of my works where you can find Necropolis Immortal on Wucho World, my other novel, Return of the Swallow, that's on Volare novels, and like everything else I do. So like book reviews or translator resources, other podcasts I'm in. But yeah, etvolare.com. You can find that all there.
0: Excellent. I'll put that link in the show notes as well as our word of a day. And if I'm feeling cheeky, maybe uh, I'll link to a whiskey sour recipe as well. (laughs) Indeed. Okay. So before we go our separate ways, um, I'd like to take a chance to direct the listeners towards some uh, further reading. So you've already given us a lot of different recommendations, but here's a slot for one more. Um, So if our listeners want to check out more uh, Wushia online, where should where could they look i mean you've you've basically already told us but is there anywhere uh, that we've not mentioned yet that would be a good place to look mm. if the answer is no yeah. that is fine
1: <laughs> i feel like i gotta i gotta squeeze something out
0: <laughs> mm. are there any really I mean... good web novels on wuxia world um or valari novel um, that we haven't mentioned yet that they could check out Mm. <laughs> uh, it's favoritism. You don't want to be favoritizing someone.
1: Exactly. I'm like, uh-huh. whichever translator's work I mention now, because I'm obviously not going to shill for myself again, all my other colleagues will be like, Edpa, what about me? <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Yeah, I put you in a, bit of a trap there, haven't I?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, so you should just... Uh, I have a podcast episode that goes into what wusha is. You should go to FLIR.com for more wusha material.
0: Okay, I think we escaped the trap. Myself. Or you escaped the trap. Excellent. Indeed. Um okay, and less of a trap question. Well, maybe. Who knows? Uh, what are you reading just now?
1: Oh, that is not a trap question. Mm. Okay, good. Pause <laughs> and I just ran off to grab my book. Uh what is next on my list now that i've just finished this insane project is actually a print i would say wuxia book i'm not entirely sure yes a print wuxia fantasy that's written by zen cho it's called the order of the pure moon reflected in water and ken liu actually says it's utterly brilliant so she was so generous as to send me a copy for a giveaway she ran and i promised to write her a review um yeah i've uh, uh, 2020 happened i'm very sorry zen if you're reading if you're listening to this podcast yeah. it's it's on my reading list i'm reading it i just i will get to it
0: oh i suppose the good thing about 2020 yeah. happening is it happened to us all so centro is also going through 2020 um mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to do a plug here. Um, if, if any listeners heard the name Ken Leo and their ears pricked up, I've got an episode where he is the show guest talking about a uh, Chinese sci-fi oh, novel, Vagabonds. Oh, really? you didn't know? <laughs> um, no, uh, I mean, I'm kind of by... busy, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, no, 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 it's fine. Um, you are not supposed to study the podcast and learn every episode before you come on. <laughs> it's
1: not yeah, um, if listeners
0: <laughs> like Ken Leo or want to know more about him and the works he translated, there's an episode I've got when I was doing a series just like this, but it was a sci-fi series and we did, um, or he came on to talk about his translation of Hao Jing Fang's uh, Vagabonds. So yeah, um, and he's the man, it's a great episode. And if he recommends a mm-hmm. book like Zen Cho's novel that you've got in your hands yeah. there, then it's gotta be a good one.
1: Definitely, she says that this is a wuxia fantasy that combines old school martial arts movies with characters from the margins of history. So I think it's gonna be a pretty darn good read looking forward to reading something that's not work for once <laughs> uh, you know, that's the drawback with translators in our mm. scene we we have to work so much that we don't really have time to read <laughs>
0: yeah i think i might have said this before in the podcast but um i did it my undergrad degree was a literature degree and the kind of running mm-hmm. through that is oh we have only we only have time to read the course books Um, when this is finally <laughs> over we'll be able to uh, be free from our studies when we read but what happens in reality is you never, or at least I think for most people who, who survive a literature degree, the tra- like the, your literary studies training never leaves your head. So the reading for pleasure just kind of ends up blending with yep. your yep. critical lens and the two can yep. never be separated. But I can see how that, well, doing a podcast, I can kind of see how your professional lens and your reading for pleasure lens might end up getting melted and fused.
1: Yep. So I I actually, I watch a lot of TV (laughs) as opposed to reading. Actually, I love watching uh, detective TV shows. So Uh uh, those really get my gears going in my mind. I watch those.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I like, I like a good mystery too. Um, I would, I would talk to you about my favorite detective shows, but that is so beside the point. Um, (laughs) let's not do it. I I, I guess we can just end the show here. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. You've been a fantastic guest. And like I said, that was the most rational structured, sensible explanation for which booze your translation is
1: <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go listen to what the others said then I bet mm. you someone just said straight up shot
0: <laughs> no one's done that yet uh, or someone's yes. mm, right. Deathblade said by Joe um, so maybe
1: oh of course he would yeah
0: I don't think he specified <laughs> the volume though might have been a whole bottle.
1: <laughs> and that that's a reflection of, on him not on his work <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, Deathblade uh, and I are Deathblade and I are also friends. In case listeners are uh, scandalized, don't right. be. you are not <gasps>
0: mortal enemies. That's good.
1: <laughs> Maybe in our past life.
0: So now that we're reaching the end of the show, I'm going to do the plugs. So our first plug is. The Patreon or Patreon, however you want to say it. So the last bonus episode I put up was on the Penguin uh, Specials book on Beethoven in China. And it was a really interesting read for me, and hopefully my discussion of it will be interesting for patrons. But it just kind of goes into what's going on in that penguin specials book and what can it teach you about both about Beethoven in China, classical music in China, Chinese history. And indeed, for someone like me, who's not a Beethoven or classical music uh, aficionado in any way, I learned a lot about just those things without even the China dimension. So yeah, um, that is just one of many bonus episodes up there on the Patreon that every tier of Patreon uh, supporter can get access to. So yeah, if you want more of the show, that's the place to go. If you'd like to support me uh, tangibly without it being a monthly commitment, there's buy me a coffee. Um, it, is, it is what it sounds like. Obviously you don't literally send me a coffee in the post or something, but you can give like a few pounds or USD, whatever you want to call it, uh, d- donations to the show. So both of those websites, you just put in the website's address and put slash T-R-C-H-F-I-C on the end, and that's how you can get to them. Um, the next thing I've not uh, plugged for a few episodes now, it's the Trachific Discord channel. So, If you don't use Discord but you do use Slack, then Discord is like Slack but for cool kids. Uh, If you don't use either of them, it's basically a little platform where um, fans of the show can join, and then there are several kind of like channels or groups where you can talk. So we've got a general one, we've got a um, sci fi one, we have a wuxia one, and we have specific channels for specific episodes. Uh, yeah, so I'm on there, of, of course. Uh, former show guest Dylan Levi King is on there, and a lot of other uh, enthusiastic, enthusiastic listeners are on there. So if you want to talk with them or just meet them, find them online? That's a good place to do it. Um, show social media, of course, can't go the plugs without doing these. So you can find me on Twitter at, at @AngusLikesWords. I tweet mostly about uh, Chinese lit, things related to the show sometimes I don't, you can use it to spy on me online. Um, The podcast does have an official Instagram which has no spillage from my personal life and that is at trichific, t-r-c-h-f-i-c. Last thing of all, if you didn't already know, um, I've moved hosting of this show to Podbean and Podbean is really good for the show because the show notes, I can format those all beautifully with the links working properly so full proper show notes working 100% you can get them on Podbean and I make art for every episode. Uh, I make it as like a YouTube thumbnail for the YouTube uploads but on Podbean I'm able to put them on there. I'm also able to make my own web pages on Podbean so I've made a special page for the sci-fi season. Uh, I'm obviously in the process of making one for the wuxia season because Wish seen it underway. Sorry, I'm yawning. Uh, and the Churchific map has its own page on Podbean as well. So that's uh, t- uh, trchfic.podbean.com. Churchific.podbean.com. Po- church it's all there. Um, I think I'm out of plugs. So the last thing that remains to be said is the best thing you can do for the show, you should know by now if you've been listening for a while, it's to tell people. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your maid, tell your local geomancer. Or what what should we say? Tell your local Feng Shui open brackets Chinese Geomancy close brackets master. Uh, tell him about the show and if he's into it, you know, then it must be a good show. Uh that's that's um that's my words have officially run out now. So until next episode, it's IGN.